Suddenly, Blair was being depicted as arrogant and failing to deliver on Labour's promises. I've got a feeling with this thing that, that if you have a strong idea of what you want to do and believe in pushing it through, then you're a, in inverted commas, dictator, and if you're not, then you're weak. In his first thousand days, his many roles have included that of war leader, peace broker, expectant father, and populist politician, populist politician, populist politician, populist politician. Populist opposing the politician, government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left, Chris? Well, we know who the hard left are in the you know, ascendancy we within, the, within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing the hard left agenda. Printing money, nationalisation, compensation, hard left wing position, hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, 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 Bella Ciao, Bella Ciao, goodbye beautiful, oh Partigiano, please take me with you, I'm not afraid You're listening to Real Politic with me, Jack Frayne Reed. None of my co-hosts are in today for our discussion we'll be having, but we do have a special guest. Anton Jaeger is a PhD student researching populism. He has written extensively on the subject, including a couple of articles in Jacobin that have come out in the last few months. So, Anton, how are you doing? Fine, fine. I'm great. Thanks. I initially wanted to do an episode on populism because The Guardian published that absolutely fucking absurd sort of <laughs> quiz which is the <laughs> You know, well, I mean, as far as I know, literally all my friends got Pablo Iglesias on it. It said I was the least close to Donald Trump out of all the politicians you could potentially get on it, which I was pleased with because quite often with liberal analyses of populism, you see the far right and the far left lumped together under the auspices of horseshoe theory, which I'm sure we'll address later. But no, the Guardians did very much seem to be like people on the left are all Pablo Iglesias. <laughs> I don't know who got Donald Trump. I don't know anyone. Did you read that? No, I couldn't even finish the quiz because I just thought it was too jaw-droppingly bad at times. It's really the stuff of fantasy and, and I get what they were trying to do to make the whole series seem a bit more comprehensive. But the result is analytically quite disastrous and i think it also shows what you could call excessive border traffic between like journalism and political science and because a lot of political science is today a form of consultancy so a lot of populism scholars just consult mainstream politicians who are worried about this populist menace and mainly worried about their own careers i guess but also about the health of their body politic or whatever it's interesting you mention um, borders 
because the non-populist politicians interviewed by The Guardian in that series, who I believe were Matteo Renzi, Tony Blair, Tony Blair well. and Hillary Clinton. And they all, yes, yeah. they all seem to be saying that for the centre to actually fight back effectively against this populist wave, they need to basically keep doing what they're doing. They're doing good but they need to be more anti-immigration. There really is like a lot of hypocrisy involved in picking those three populist antagonists as well. Because when you look at the 90s and you look at Blair's behavior or even the Clintons, like a lot of the things they accuse populists of doing, it's just thinking of an homogenous people with a sort of unified will agitating against outsiders, were both tactics which New Labour under Blair and also the Clintonite Democratic Party really excelled in the 1990s. So a lot of the talk about benefits scroungers, a lot of the talk about immigration, which is now seen as a product of the Conservatives, was actually really innovated by New Labour at the time. So now we're being presented people who are the, let's say, prime firefighters against the populist fire, who in the 90s were actually self-consciously populist. I mean, if you look at Blair's discourses in the 90s, the real idea was to stop talking about class because he used associated that with a sort of sterile workerism from the 1980s and the idea was let's talk about the people so there's that famous speech he gave after the diana funeral i think or after she died and the prime political unit for blair really was the people and the entire discourse of blairism revolved around the people yeah. and it's a really sort of precious irony of history that that particular person is now being given a platform in the garden as the best consultant on how to stop populism yeah. when it's very clear that what we consider populism now which is obviously a debatable term but given our contemporary definition Blair in the 1990s perfectly fits the bill I can't see how he would not qualify for that label in that sense yeah I mean I guess he was a populist of that particular moment which was yes, you know, exactly, the, the yeah. end of history and in fact my producer Tom Disso who edits this podcast he sent me a video a 2000 BBC documentary called what makes tony tick in which tony Mm. blair is described as i shit you not a populist politician exactly exactly yeah i mean it's it's hardly surprising because what you also now see is the kind of weird convergence between populists and technocrats Mm. a political scientist named chris bickerton has invented a term for it called techno populism where actually i mean populism has long been a sort of weird schizophrenic double of technocracy you can always see this in italy now when you have the five-star movement who's calling for all these referendums like digital plebiscites but at the same time once a highly technocratic, value-free form of governance. And for some reason, they don't have any difficulty mixing those two attitudes. And I think that's also what you see with Blair, is that the technocrat has taken over from the populist. But that doesn't mean that essential marriage between those two tendencies has really stopped functioning. So it's quite dishonest of him to act in that way. But historically, he embodies that kind of Jekyll and Hyde oscillation between the two poles very well. I guess probably more on the Hyde kind of aspect yes yeah, yeah lately i guess yes yeah, what, what i'm saying is that blair is a monster i'm being <laughs> 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 it was a very funny joke about how i don't like tony blair but yeah i guess blair's populism when he was still more politically relevant than he is today shall we say being slightly more temperate in in what we yeah, about tony blair yeah, yeah, yeah. it was more a populism that was about building consensus in society as opposed to the kind of i guess populism is generally seen as quite an adversarial type of politics it's about identifying conflicting interests in society but tony blair seemed to try and appeal to as many people as possible from the mm-hmm. rich to the poor and kind of say well your interests aren't necessarily 
actually competing. Yes, yeah, yeah. Although I don't think history um, bore out that analysis. I definitely think that for our contemporary take on populism, that definitely holds true. And I think the real demarcation to draw with other approaches is mainly versus class. So the idea is that the language of interest is traded for the language of identity. So what you could typify it is as a sort of anti-particularist identity politics. This is a definition which has been floated around in the literature as well, is that so we live in an age in which identities have become the prime factors of political life and the specificity of populism vis-a-vis all those other forms of identity politics is that it's very universalist, like it makes a claim on a unified people which transcends group identities, so it transcends class, it transcends religious identities. I mean, it can be ethnic, but usually it's a bit broader than a notion of an ethnos. But at the same time, it's still highly identitarian in the sense that the way you identify the people is through yeah, determining its identity, basically. And the contrast with class analysis is quite striking because the reason Blair had to act like a populist in the 1990s is because he was functioning in a political space where all these institutions that classically what you call with a fancy term like aggregate and form interests, such as unions and churches and what's called intermediary bodies, have completely disappeared. So Thatcher destroyed a large part of British civil society in the 1980s, 1990s, not only the labor movement, but also the conservatives, so radical dwindling in membership. And the way you respond to this is that there's just an electable gap between the population and the political class, because the kind of institutions that structure political life have been devastated, and still you need to pose a sort of claim on who you represent. And that means that populism is a kind of handy communication device in an age after party democracy. So in a time when there are no real parties that structure interests, that make clear to people what their interests are, there are no unions left, politicians just have to look for a different way to communicate with what they call the people. So they have to speculate on a popular will. And I think populism, or what we call populism today, is an essential part of this, where it gives the illusion of a connection between the political class and the population, while it's very clear that the connection it offers is purely illusionary, so to say. Do you think that the slogan that Labour ran with in the last election, and in fact are still running with, for the many, not the few, indicates, well, the many is a populist conception of the people. And do you Mm -hmm. think that the fact that this slogan actually dates back to the new Labour era does show a kind of commonality in what might be seen as very disparate populist approaches between New Labour and the actually right now New Labour Party? Yeah, I definitely think there's a commonality just in the sense that they face a similar structural relationship in which Jeremy Corbyn certainly or the rest of the party, I mean, it's still a very large party, but a lot of its members are quite passive. It's not entirely clear what the kind of hierarchy in the new party is, where you have the leftovers of the Blairite era, and then a sort of new Corbynite wave. And I think the slogan just embodies the fact that Corbynism is looking for a way to get a society base, basically, get a firm societal base from which you can draw support so that you can stop speculating on what the people might want and get out of that game of statistics. And I don't oppose the slogan for any reason, but it's also inevitably a populist slogan just because that is a situation you face today. So I think cursing populism in that sense is not going to help because, as I said, the kind of substructure all those classical 20th century parties drew on has just disappeared. And Corbynite labor is quite an exception. It's still the largest social democratic or the only surviving social democratic party in Europe, maybe for some Scandinavian outposts. But at the same time, it is not very clear what 
the real dynamic between the membership and the leadership is because it's unlike anything we've seen in the 20th century and inevitably the way you communicate with your like there's a difference between your membership and your voters and the way you communicate with voters as a sort of disparate group inevitably has to be populist almost because that seems to be the only way you can yes. pose a representative claim i would say like an example of labor's current policy and don't get me wrong i mean i obviously am a corbyn supporter and i'm not trying to come up with a smart mm. way of saying that actually they're just as right wing as blair no it's in terms of them trying to come up with an appeal to the country's many mm -hmm. i think that an example of that that is completely in keeping with the strategy pursued by new labor in the run-up to the 1997 election would be the pledge not to raise taxes on anybody other than yeah, I, think, yeah. i think the top five percent i think new labor were even somewhat hesitant about raising them for the top five percent but very much it's trying to say whether you've got a bit of money in the bank you can still support our kind of quote-unquote common sense socialism yes yeah, yeah, yeah. it's an offer for the country at large so it's not entirely rooted in old conceptions of class but why yes, yeah. do you think that other social democratic and socialist parties around europe have been reluctant to follow the british labor party's lead and return to or seek for the first time a more class-based yeah, sort, of yeah, yeah. sort of left populism well i really think the answer is very crude and it's basically brexit so we can disagree on whether brexit is good or bad or what its exact consequences are going to be but i think the success of corbynite labor is very closely tied with what you could call the sort of renationalization of british politics so the idea that power really lies in westminster the question is what you do with british power and it has put the idea that you can And actually propose all these policies which repoliticize economics in a very, very explicit way. And when you look at all these sister parties across the continent, and you look at the people who still populate the ranks of those parties, these people are so used to being entrenched in the state, whether that's a national state or whether that's the more European state, that they just have a sense that to them politics in a national context, if it takes place in a national context, it inevitably revolves around cultural issues. So it's about defending certain cultural values. But it's very difficult to get these people... Yeah, I mean, there's a beautiful phrase by the Irish political scientist Peter Mayer, which says, ruling the void. So what you have to do after the 1980s, after the age of party democracy, is that you have a gap between citizens and elites, or like citizens and political elites, and what you have to do is start ruling the void that has grown between those two entities. And all those other social democratic parties are still in a kind of default mode where ruling the void or the way they've learned to deal with that void is just the only way they conceive of politics. And what Brexit has done is that Obviously, it's not brought socialism to the UK in any sense, but I think it has really narrowed the gap between the political class and the population because it had exposed the incompetency and the sort of monumental ineptitude of this political class. And it doesn't mean there is definitely more control, which there isn't, but it's very curious how it has created a sense in which, oh, politics can mean something. We can actually do something about our situation. And I think it has remedied a weird kind of helplessness which still paralyzes all those other social democratic parties and which, as you say, their basic tactic now is trying to ape the right-wing populists on matters of immigration, but obviously that 
just gets you into a trap of plagiarism where people will always prefer the original over the derivative. And you can just see this kind of death spiral all across Europe where these social democratic parties are doing one last desperate attempt to do a cultural coup and say like, oh, but we can be a bit more racist. If you want us to be a bit more racist, we're happy to do that. But it's very clear that although people might express their frustrations through certain racist means, this is not the core of the issue. I mean, it's so much more complex. It's tragic because you can see it's basically going nowhere. Well, I've always been a defender of Labour's stance on Brexit, and I think a big part of what they've done is that they've, by saying we accept the result of a referendum, but still opposing the Tories' policies on Brexit by, you know, still opposing the xenophobia that it produced, you know, what they've done is that they've kind of decoupled the act of leaving the hated neoliberal behemoth, the European Union, from this idea of Brexit, which is solidified into something basically emblematic of racism and xenophobia. An end to free movement wasn't even originally in Corbyn's team's draft of the manifesto. It was added at the behest of Keir Starmer, who is, in fact, beloved far more by people who say they love the EU because of free movement. You know, you almost get the sense some of them just don't like the left very much. But um, (laughs) (laughs) despite the fact that I do think that although it's not perfect, because obviously it's an exclusionary thing that benefits people from the EU above people fleeing war zones and stuff. You know, I'm not entirely happy with Labour's policy on free movement, but I think at the same time what they've done is they've said there is a mandate to leave the EU. There is not a mandate for becoming basically Red UKIP. And, yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. And so they've tried to walk a very difficult line. But I think what they've done is that they've just essentially pushed concerns like immigration right down to the bottom of the queue with regards to where they were before. They've made it about the feeling of the anti elite sentiment that also yeah, yeah, lay yeah. behind that vote. But I mean, you've really seen something quite spectacular happen in the aftermath of, of I think. I think the actual 2016 referendum where you look at these statistics on feelings towards immigration and when you see how people rank their priorities in political life like immigration always figures very highly and then a year later after Brexit there's been like a really precipitous decline in the attachment people have to immigration and I think it also has to do because obviously there is anti-immigrant sentiment and obviously there are strongly racist sentiments in parts of British society both in the elite and the popular sectors you could say yeah. but there's a big sense in the way immigration is conceived as a proxy for other problems. So immigration acts as a crystallizing element that ties together all these fears about how the European Union membership interacts with British labor markets and all these kind of questions. I think a large part of that racist sentiment also comes from the idea that you're not opposed to immigration as such, but you're opposed to the idea what the European Union does is that it puts matters pertaining to immigration beyond any kind of popular will as such. They have to be codified in constitutional code and you can't ever touch it. So we can have a debate on immigration or the problem now is surely that there's a lot of mobility for capital, but not mobility for people. But the sense that people have now is, okay, it wasn't necessarily about immigration, but it was actually about control. 
already creates a completely different perception of that problem. So I think it's absolutely right what Corbyn is trying to do is just say, let's just change our order of priority of political issues and let's not focalize on this one. Because what May now is trying to do is basically she's trying to keep the mobility of capital, but she's trying to heavily, heavily restrict the movement of people yeah. into the United Kingdom as a kind of bait or a kind of yeah lame compensation for what has been demanded in the referendum which is kind of, again, a continuation of her culture war tactic, where she basically says, oh, if only we get fewer people in, then everything will be fine. When it's very clear that immigration was already quite restrictive before the referendum, and yeah. making it more restrictive is obviously not going to solve the UK's problems. Absolutely. You often see, I mean, obviously it's a legitimate concern. I'm not doing the whole, the fucking how I just use the phrase legitimate concern. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is I'm not going to do the whole oh, neoliberalism isn't a word but for globalization but i do feel that politicians like tony blair and his acolytes quite frequently use globalization in their rhetoric around populism as a substitute for neoliberalism or capitalism to talk about how people are disillusioned with the current status quo and i think a lot of the time this choice is made because in a way it kind of racializes the issue it does make it about nation yeah, exactly, and about exactly borders yeah. and it's indicative of the fact that they're willing to make concessions on immigration but concessions on precious little else that they, yeah exactly that they yeah. should legitimately be conceding given you know the global financial crisis and its 10-year aftermath that we just lived through. It's also because the term globalization has always had a very strong, what you could call, determinist ring to it. It's a kind of inevitability. It's like a sort of natural process. We're entering mm. into a new geological period and now we're entering into this new political period called globalization. While what is very clear even that the kind of globalization we knew in the 90s and which continued to 2000 was very, very much based around states. So I think the argument was more about proving the helplessness of states vis-a-vis -vis this thing called globalization when it was very clear that states were like constitutive of the process known as globalization. And even if you look now at China or America, or even the post-2008 era demonstrates this perfectly. It's like states are still incredibly central to capitalist governments, just because capitalists themselves are very, very bad at managing. They're just very bad at making profits. And as we see with crisis, then it inevitably blows up. And the idea is also what Blair tried to do with a term such as globalization is just to put certain things beyond politics when they're actually still determined by politics, but just to isolate this sphere of decision making and say oh yeah but we can't touch that we can't ever really go there and then obviously the only way you can still pander to people is by initiating culture wars and having very very facile stories about immigration as the only thing that causes wage depression etc etc i guess the primary problem i and probably most other people on the left have with the current discourse around populism that it tends to collapse distinct ideological categories in to one another a kind of yeah. you know post-ideological mush and there's a very interesting thing you say about the national front in your the myth of populism piece where you say in effect the discourse that french political scientists had around populism over the course of the 1980s in effect transformed the front national from a fascist party to a populist one 
which, I mean, I, I imagine has done wonders for their image. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I give the famous example of that interview Jean-Marie Le Pen gave in the early 90s, where this journalist asked him whether he's a populist, and he responds by saying, oh, what do you mean by the word populist? And then he responds, oh, well, I mean, someone who listens to the people, or who speaks in the name of the people, and then Jean-Marie Le Pen is more than happy to concede this and says, oh, yeah, if that's the definition of a populist, I'm definitely a populist. But it's interesting because the word populism was first introduced mainly to French political science for Europe. European cases in the late 70s, and it actually was not a way to sanitize the front, but it was a way to make clear that the front did not pose the same kind of threat to liberal democracy like it did before. So the idea was, oh, liberal Democrats have defeated all their enemies, the far right is no longer a threat, and we should stop calling the far right the far right because this just is hysteria, so populism functions both as a sanitizer and it induces a certain self-confidence in liberals. So it's another kind of end of history thing. Yes, exactly. It's a variation on that theme, although before Fukuyama wrote his actual thesis. But the way it also functions is, if you call the Front National populist, there's obviously this kind of primary connection with the notion of the people there. So the Front National is populist, that means they express a certain popular will. If the Front National as a party has racist views, then the way you causally infer where those racist views come from is obviously from the popular will they represent. So that does the really amazing trick of actually blaming the French people for the racism of a specific party. So it actually deflects from the fact that the Front National still, as a party, represents an elite segment of the French population. It's a specific kind of rural bourgeoisie, which is obviously not the Parisian bourgeoisie, which is still an elite. But at the same time, that elite is heavily racist. But since a lot of liberals being from the elite can't really imagine that other people from the elite are really racist, Mm. because, I mean, that's just a pose, I guess, they have to actually make the argument that, oh, yeah, but the Front National is just channeling this dark energy from a kind of constituency that has these incurably racist tendencies. And that is just a dynamic which you've seen play out in so many different contexts in the last 20 years, where the word populism mainly functions as a way for liberals to self-absolve and as a synonym for demagoguery, it's done them really great service because anything that resembles a critique of liberalism can now be dismissed as populist in a sense. You mentioned in your piece that they came up with a kind of clarification for the Front National, which was to call them national populism, which sounds quite familiar. Yes, yeah. So there's recently been a book which uses that term again. I mean, I'm not familiar enough with the specific version of the argument made in the book. I mean, we've really come a long way since that moment in the 90s. There's been a real explosion in populism studies. I mean, there's been a populist explosion in politics, but also a real populism boom in political science. But there's a weird argument of representation going around. When politicians say racist things, the idea is that they're expressing a kind of authentic people's will, which is very, very, I mean, there's a really good anecdote which shows the kind of fallacy this presents. There was like a famous populist politician named Pim Fortuyn in the Netherlands, and one of his slogans was, he says what you think, the way he says, oh, I see, he says what you think. Then there was a rally and people were shouting this slogan, and then a journalist asked one of the people who were actually at the rally, so you like Pim Fortuyn for what reason? And then the person says, oh, because he says what I think. And then they asked that 
person, oh, yeah, but what do you think? It says, oh, of course, what he's saying. <laughs> and I think this also illustrates the logic of racist voting is that it's only because someone is willing to represent a kind of racist sentiment that that racist sentiment can be activated in the first place. And I don't know whether you're familiar with this book, but DJ Eribon, a French intellectual, wrote a very, very beautiful reflection on his youth and growing up in a working class family in the north of France, made a very valuable point that even in the 60s and 70s, when his parents, who then voted communist and started voting for the Front National in the 1980s, he said, yeah. even in my young days, I noticed the sort of quotidian racism in their lives. So the way they talk about certain people in the neighborhood or Algerian immigrants, we wouldn't call it very proper. But at the same time, in the 60s and 70s, that racism never became politically activated because yeah. when they voted, he said, they voted for the Communist Party, which was not perfect, but which was not officially a racist party. And he makes a very powerful point where he says, so it's only when this daily racism gets a political platform or gets someone that's willing to represent it and turn into a program that they themselves actually really become racist. The racism before was, we wouldn't call it harmless because it was way weaker and just not as ferocious as the one we know later. And you see just a rehashing of this argument again in, I mean, the opposite argument from Eribon in the book by Matthew Goodwin, etc. I guess there seems to be an increasing primacy of cultural concerns over material ones. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. that is kind of widely accepted in politics in a way it necessarily wouldn't have been before. I mean, you have journalists who essentially make a career off getting a train up north for the day and going around. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, sorry. Obviously, obviously, I mean John Harris, but like going around and uh, like a shopping center and asking people about immigration and then they write these articles like I can't possibly understand why these working class people who are obviously suffering economically would want to vote for a Labour Party that will offer them a living wage and social housing and a properly funded NHS I cannot see why these people would possibly want to vote for them it is a wholly legitimate and logical thing just to vote for UKIP for some reason and it got I think the most absurd example of this was in the Stoke-on-Trent by-election last year before the general election so it was at the absolute low point of Corbynism when the by-election in Copeland had just been lost to the Tories and so many journalists including I think John Harris who said this is Labour's Waterloo really really seemed to think that Gareth Snell the Labour candidate was going to lose the seat to Paul Nuttall the leader of UKIP and there was no basis for this. UKIP won a completely derisory kind of portion of the vote and Nuttall ran just an appalling campaign. But people were so confident with seemingly no real basis that people were going to go for UKIP. So do you think that in the mainstream conversation, you know, in the liberal press and so on, there's a condescension towards the working class that is essentially kind of saying, well, why wouldn't they just vote for this racist guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why would they know what's good for them? I think the material explanation for this cultural focus is because it's cheap, because it's just a lot cheaper than real redistributive programs. Just pandering to prejudice is not only, I mean, it might be dangerous in the long term, but in the short term, it's actually way more expedient if you want to get it out of the way in the short term. I mean, in America, you can clearly see the story is also that in the 60s and 70s, for example, incarceration as a program was mainly stimulated as a response, for example, to the crime wave. 
which sometimes caused a kind of working class constituency to ask for solutions to that crime wave in the 60s and 70s. The proposals put forward by a working class institution at the time were very clear, like, okay, we need massive investment in these areas. We need to coerce capital to invest in these areas so this crime wave can actually be stopped. But obviously, that was quite expensive and would mean that you actually have to coerce capital. And a way cheaper solution was just to incarcerate everyone and get a whole private industry for prisons going. And I think this, which is not a cultural tactic, but it's based on a kind of culturalist assumption that what you need to change is these cultural habits, basically. Yeah. And at the same time, as I say, this has a very, very old history in populism studies. Because the idea that populism fundamentally revolves around status, that it revolves around status anxiety, that it's fundamentally a form of cultural politics, or also that it's centered around identity, was really invented in the Cold War in the 50s and 60s as a way to delegitimize certain forms of popular radicalism, mainly in the American context. And you can still see the traces of that habit all around you, basically. Do you want to talk a bit about the origins of populism as we know it in the 1890s over in America and about the Hofstadter thesis about it? and how that proved to be something that has had an enormous amount of staying power, despite being largely rejected by its own author. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to be careful that I don't talk for an hour here, because it's basically <laughs> my doctoral project. But to summarise really cursorily, so the word populism itself, as a word, was only invented in 1891, and it was actually invented to term the largest third party in American history, which was the People's Party, which was a party mainly of urban workers and also farmers from the South, which had a strong biracial appeal in the South of America because it managed to unite both poor blacks and poor whites against a rising planter class. In the 1880s, most of these farmers unite in cooperatives to fight against railroads and extortionate prices from merchants. And in the 1890s, actually move into politics and they found the so-called People's Party, which runs for federal election 1892, 1894. And then in 1896, they fuse with the Democrats in a fatal move because the Democrats, I mean, they weren't incurably racist party at the time. They're less so now. I mean, they're still odious, but in a different way. Yeah. But they lose that election to the Republicans and the party kind of fades from view. But the Populist Party in the South mainly was an incredibly potent working class revolt. And you can even say that the entirety of Jim Crow, so all the segregation laws that were voted in the 1890s and 1900s or the beginning of the 20th century were actually conceived as a response to the threat of populism. So the idea was we need to create this legal system which makes sure that poor white farmers and poor black farmers never unite again, because if they do, they might completely disrupt the political economic regime we've constructed for elites here in the South. So yeah. it leaves a really powerful legacy throughout the 20th century, where even you have like speeches by Martin Luther King in the early 50s, where he regards his big historical exemplar as populism. He says, this is what we need to go back to. This was the moment the Jim Crow order was first contested and the reason it was put in place in the first place. And what you see in the 1920s and 1930s is that American historians have a fairly positive view of the populist as just another epigon of glorious American Republican tradition. But it's only in the 1950s, 1960s that this particular historian named Richard Hofstadter, who's really one of the most famous American historians ever, who was a great writer and a fantastic cultural critic, but who was very, very bad with evidence, makes the claim that there's an essential continuity between late 19th century populism and the McCarthy movement. 
because he says it arises in the same areas. It's also motivated by the same concerns. It's basically a variation of, oh, it was this angry white working class that couldn't handle their loss of status privilege and we hated immigrants and we hated southern blacks and for this reason they united in this proto-fascist movement basically. An argument that we've seen quite a lot in the last few months in the context of the debate within Labour over anti-Semitism is that there's something about the anti-elitism of leftist thought, it's anti-capitalism, the way it identifies the super-rich bankers as the enemy which is essentially conducive to anti-Semitism. Am am I right in thinking that that was another argument that was made by, fuck, I've forgotten his name. Hofstadter. Richard Hofstadter, yeah. 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 I mean, it's a tricky issue because Richard Hofstadter himself was Jewish. He did face a lot of discrimination in the American Academy at the time. Yeah. He lost several jobs because I think Yale had quotas on Jewish students until the middle of the 60s. It's really crazy where anti-Semitism was really pervasive in that society. Yeah. The mistake he made is that there were definitely a side to late 19th century American populism that could slide into anti-Semitic stereotyping mainly because of historical heritage, for example, no such as the Shylock merchant, which you could call a sort of banal daily anti-Semitism, which is not fiercely ideological, but which is still anti-Semitic. Yeah. But the problem was that he identified populism as the unique source of anti-Semitism in the late 19th century. Okay. And when you look at it, who actually was anti-Semitic in the late 19th century, there was like massive anti-Semitism among American elites. Yeah. And actually in, in the South and in the Midwest, where the populists were most successful, a lot of Jews actually joined the populist movement at the same time. So the issue is he made a mistake to say that populism really was the root of all American anti-Semitism. But what you see nowadays is that this is again used to discredit certain critiques. I mean, I definitely think that like labor is a big tent. There's a lot of people coming in and you can't expect the same level of political education for everyone. I mean, the whole point of a party is that you educate people and that you actually instruct them on how to think about all these different social issues. And it's still true that anti-Semitism offers a very easy way of what you could call complexity reduction. Yeah. So if you're faced with all these impersonal, large, ungraspable forces, which are incredibly threatening, and if you want to calm yourself and make it all intellectually comprehensible, anti-Semitism is just a very easy way. But the solution to this should not, I think, be a campaign of agitation against Corbyn. I think it should just be to work through those problems within a party context and to get educational initiatives going. And instead, people just fall back on the Hofstadter thesis because it's easier, because you can delegitimize any form of radicalism as potentially on the brink of turning to a sort of really violent form of anti-Semitism, basically. I think rather than necessarily coming as a result of the so-called populist moment of Corbynism, I think a lot of these people, they may be a bit older and they may have had left-wing views, some of which are not that left-wing and actually quite dodgy, for a long time. And the conspiratorial nature of some of their beliefs likely comes from rather than being swept up in a popular insurgency from the marginalisation that yes. they felt in having quote-unquote anti-establishment beliefs at a time when there was, you know, nary a political voice for anti-establishment tendencies. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure who we're exactly talking about, but it's definitely true there's an older generation of people who survived the trek through the desert, almost, you'd say. There's like 30 years or 20 years of Blairism, and then you had the flourishing of all these marginal radicals 
capitalisms next to it. Yeah. But at the same time, I find it very tricky to say that only people on the left, or I'd say only the popular sectors are prone to conspirationism. Because when you look at the way, for example, the populist revolt has been explained in liberal quarters, also in The Guardian. Russia. The Guardian. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, liberals have no lessons to teach when it comes to conspiracy thinking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, The Guardian ran at least 12 articles showing how Steve Bannon is engineering this entire populist surge without even conceiving the fact, well, maybe Bannon is just jumping on a bandwagon and the causal yeah. factors causing the surge are completely different. It's because you don't want to actually deal with them and you're happy to have this kind of malicious demon who's controlling the entire universe, which yeah. I mean, which is structurally analogous to anti-Semitic argument. And it's like populism is not due to this systemic fault. It's just because it's heroically convinced the entire population to vote for this party, basically. Well, you kind of see, like, from the centrist ads, the sort of incredibly perpetually angry set on Twitter. Whenever somebody in the Labour Party expresses a left-wing view that they disagree, they're like, oh, did Seamus Milne put you up to this? <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think the, the prior point actually leads on to an interesting question. How would you define the populism of the centre in 2018 because they do seem to be appealing to you know the popular is it populi or populo whatever yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I'm, I'm not i'm not academic on this subject but they use the phrase people's vote essentially is what i'm saying yeah. um, to try and rebrand quite nakedly their cold technocratic politics as something exactly, yeah. something that is more of a populist insurgency and also they have various folk devils like russia and seamus milne yeah i think the issue is just that populism has become a kind of structural necessity for anyone who wants to engage in politics. So this is the point we were talking about earlier, is that obviously the People's Vote campaign is astroturfing. I mean, the way it built this Potemkin village of radicalism and claims it has a constituency when it's actually a very small set wealthy donors who really want to create a constituency to make sure that this thing called Brexit doesn't happen. Yeah. And I think populism is just, again, the best communication device for this because it poses this universalist claim. And now they themselves have taken on the language of popular sovereignty while they were like talking about the sovereignty of parliament for two years. And now it's all about giving the people a voice again. Yeah. So, I mean, at the same time, it's just naked opportunism where these people clearly don't believe in anything but themselves. But at the same time, it's also just structural the only way they can relate to politics. And I think Corbyn is slowly breaking that logic because he's actually trying to build a party rather than a movement or a new kind of party, while the people's vote just has to fall back on these, yeah, as you say, centrist populist habits, basically. Do you think that it's giving an indication of maybe how the centre will proceed in future. For example, I've always figured that the People's Vote campaign is trying to build some kind of infrastructure, be it for a new centrist party or for a challenge to Corbyn within Labour. There's no doubt that they do have a sizable amount of support and I wouldn't put it past them to, you know, try entryism for David Lammy in a couple of years or something yes, like yeah. the Labour Party. <laughs> but do you think that when that happens they will very much have this argument of the hard left and the hard right have let down the people stuff like that yes, we, yeah. we need to represent their interests the interests of the people and the nation and blah 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 yeah i think you definitely see that with someone like macron who in his electoral phase maybe less now because i think he's on his way out but that's a different story but in his, so. <laughs> in his electoral phase he again did that very peculiar blend of 
populism and technocracy of him claiming to be a sort of Bonapartist unifier who could get the entire French nation together around him at the same time he promised to get all these specialists into government. And I think this is, again, a sort of structural tendency within these centrist commentators is, again, to use horseshoe theory to say the extreme left and the extreme right are basically the same thing, which is a tactic which was also innovated by people in a generation of Hofstadter. And the way they used the word populism there is they say, so the extreme left is bad, the extreme right is bad, but how do you identify a common element between the two? Oh, obviously it's populism. So you have like fascism, you have Stalinism, they're both bad, but what unites them? Oh yeah, it's a kind of populist element. And if centrists today want to make a similar argument of, oh yeah, so the hard right Brexiteers and the Corbynite Milne set have let us down, paradoxically again, they'll have to use a populist device for this. So it's a kind of sorcerer's apprentice story where they're just now becoming the victim of what they've been cursing all along. It's like they're like, no, no, it's okay because we're using our populist powers for good. Exactly, exactly, yeah. I've got to say, I found it quite funny. You know, it started <laughs> off uh, Thomas something Watson, and then as the piece went on, it's just Tom Watson did this, Tom Watson did that, <laughs> in your <laughs> Jacobin piece. Like, Tom Watson, like, did some terrible lynching or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, he does seem to be a really interesting figure, though. Thomas E. Watson, who his biography reads like a quintessential southern epic, you say. I'm surprised that a film hasn't been made about him, you know, like prob- yeah, prob- yeah, yeah. problematic racist man with a sweeping epic American uh, cinema scape or something. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's very, it's extremely cinematic. Yeah, the whole thing is just a sort of classical tragedy. But he was in the 1890s at the peak of the People's Party. He was actually pretty progressive. He championed black voting rights, lauded the influx of women in the movement. But yeah, he was a very interesting figure because he did this U-turn after being very, very progressive for many years. He started ranting about Jewish billionaires and advocating the disenfranchisement of black people in southern states, helping to codify the new Jim Crow. Yeah, as I said, he incarnates a certain side or a certain paradox at the heart of populism or American populism very, very well. Yeah. And I don't think we should take him representative of the general turn of the movie. Well, I was going to say about Watson, as you say, you know, it may not be good to read into him sweeping statements about the whole of populism, but he has become a kind of poster boy for the horseshoe theory yes yeah 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 exactly well i mean i think what watson exemplifies is the intensification of certain contradictions which are already there in 1890s populism so they never fully solve the race question they also never fully solve really the question of how exactly they're going to change the american government or what kind of vision of the american government they have and because they fail to do so there is inevitably a breeding ground for frustration And Watson just presents a very acute example of this because he becomes a massive racist and anti-Semite in the turn of the 20th century. I'm using as a kind of example, just acknowledge that Hofstadter didn't get everything wrong. It's just that I think he identified the right tendencies in populism, but the problem was that he then drew a very one-sided portrait. So I think that's still something we can always say today. Hence, there's been a lot of debate about left populism as well and whether there should be something like a left-wing populism. And I'm slightly agnostic on it. I think a certain degree of left populism is just an inevitable way of rebuilding uh, political institutions nowadays because you need to actually unify people around the common project. So there's a big debate on whether the left should actually have its own populist turn, whether it should turn to its populist moment. And I kind of remain agnostic on it because I think certain populist 
socialist tactic remains inevitable in the absence of all these other institutions which classically sort of defined a class interest. But at the same time, I think we need to be very clear on what left populism can do and what it cannot do. We need to be very clear about what left populism can and what it cannot do. And I think we should be wary of using left populism as a sort of panacea for all the problems we're encountering today, basically. That sounds absolutely fair to me. I imagine you've been thinking about this partly in reaction to the new book by Chantal Mouffe. Um, yes, exactly. Which yeah. is called, I think, For a Left Populism, and you sent me a review of it by Will Davis in The Guardian, which was very interesting. I mean, I kind of agree with some of the thoughts in there. Davis also makes the correct point that there's just too much of continuity between Blair's populism and some of the rhetoric that Mouffe has been using but at the same time, I also think Davis doesn't show enough interest in the question of how you build a constituency because he himself has done a lot of interesting work on contemporary neoliberalism and the kind of institutions it crafts. But at the same time, if you actually want to reform those institutions or you want, for example, to think of a progressive role for a central bank, you actually have to think of a role. What is the popular coalition that's going to support that kind of institutional turn. And left populism actually asks that question of representation in a very acute and very relevant manner, I find. Okay, brilliant. Like I say, it's not you, it's the internet. Okay, sorry. No, that's all right. It's probably on my end and everything. My internet can be very, very erratic. But given we're having uh, trouble communicating now, it probably is a good time to wrap up. But cheers, Anton. It's been a really interesting conversation. I'll look forward to putting this out for everyone to hear. Okay, thanks so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you. No worries, man. Just quickly before you go, do you have anything to plug? Any articles forthcoming? Oh, yeah. I mean, in Jacobin, there should be a review I did of the Guardian Populism series. So if anyone's interested in that, oh, that I, should be coming out quite soon. We're, I'm interested I'm doing, in that. I, It's basically kind of discussing the problems. And the point of the article is to kind of investigate why it turned out so badly, why the populism quiz is such an aberration, but also investigate the historical roots of this particular way of thinking about populism and why it has very, very deep roots in certain liberal traditions, basically. Okay, well, thanks for coming on the show, man. It's been really good to chat. And yeah, stay well. Thanks so much. And if I die A partigiano Bella ciao, bella ciao Goodbye, beautiful Bury me Upon that mountain Beneath the shadow of the flowers So are the people The people passing Bella ciao, bella ciao Goodbye, beautiful So are the people The people passing And say oh what a beautiful flower Is 
the partisan Bella Ciao, Bella Ciao, Bella Ciao This is the flower of the partisan Who died for freedom This is the flower of the partisan who died for freedom. It's tech, it's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.